The collapse of the deal between Enron and Dynegy has left Enron employees stunned. Many of them wondering if they'll be getting their next paycheck. Everybody's concerned about their job. As it is right now, I think everybody's a little in shock. Especially because many workers are losing not only their jobs, but also their retirements as Enron's stock keeps plunging. The House Financial Services Committee will begin the first congressional hearings on the Enron debacle tomorrow morning, but they'll be doing it without much help from Enron. Late today, the company announced that neither CEO Ken Lay or any other company representative will be here to answer questions. There were very sophisticated people taking advantage of employees' money in their savings plan. Congress wants to know what caused the Enron meltdown, wants to know why employee retirement funds were wiped out, while at the same time, top executives were personally making millions. It is really the, the most stunning example of, of corporate misbehavior I think I have ever seen. Committee members will be focusing on what they describe as the company's overstated earnings, mishandling of the 401k plan, possible securities fraud, and accounting irregularities. Congressman, I, I can just say it again. On the date I left, I absolutely unequivocally thought the company was in good shape. In August 2000, the Enron stock price reached an all-time high and the company ranked fifth on the Fortune 500 list for largest companies in the United States. Just one year later, Enron filed for bankruptcy, becoming at that time the largest corporate bankruptcy in U.S. history. I think most people know the Enron story around making risky bets in the energy market and hiding substantial amounts of debt off their balance sheet, but this story goes much deeper from an accounting perspective. In this episode, we will look at how Enron used accounting tactics, some even legal, to inflate their revenue by 5,000%, hide billions in debt, and trick most of the business world into believing they were one of the strongest companies in the world. My name is Liz Brigson, and I want to welcome you to the Encorsa podcast. Encorsa is dedicated to providing industry-leading education to dynamic accounting and finance professionals all over the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Encorsa's very first podcast. We are thrilled you are here listening, and we're so pleased to be able to provide to you CPE content through this new channel. My name is Liz Brigson. I'm joined by Matt Brigson, and we're both excited to start diving into the program today. Welcome, everyone. It's As Liz said, it's really exciting to be able to offer content through podcasting. People are listening and consuming content in many different ways nowadays, and we want to be able to offer you flexibility. So in addition to webinars and on-demand content through Encorsa.com, we are now launching a podcast, which will qualify for CPE credit too. So we're really glad to have you with us today. And what better topic to talk about than Enron, right? Everyone knows about Enron in the accounting world, but we're really going to dive deep into some of the accounting tactics they used to overstate their revenue, hide debt, and fool most of Wall Street and the financial world. So really excited to talk about today's topic. Well, it wouldn't be a CPE podcast if we didn't tell you how you can earn your CPE credit. No matter what podcast platform you are listening on now, after the podcast, you can go ahead and follow the program link below. That will take you directly to Encourse's website, and you'll be able to complete the review and exam questions in order to earn your CPE credit. I want to make sure to mention that creating an account with Encorsa is free. It's very quick. And to earn your CPE credit by completing those review and exam questions, that is also free. So again, follow the link below to the course page on Encourse's website, and that will give you everything you need to earn your free CPE credit. 
If you have any questions, you can go ahead and send us an email at support at incorsa.com and we'd be happy to help you out. When we think about Enron, we typically think about the fall of Enron and the collapse of Enron, which happened in 2001. But really, the story goes back so much further than that. Yeah, the story of Enron really starts back in 1985. And it's difficult to mention any Enron events without talking about Ken Lay. Ken was there in the beginning when Enron was formed, and he was captain of the ship when Enron went down and filed for bankruptcy in 2001. Ken Lay grew up in Missouri, his father was a Baptist minister, and their family ran a general store that eventually would go out of business. So he lived a lot of his life and his upbringing in poverty. And I think people that knew Ken Lay would say he wanted to do anything he could to change the trajectory of his life. After his undergraduate degree in college, he entered officer training school for the U.S. Navy. And while in the U.S. Navy, he earned a Ph.D. in economics. He rose in the ranks in the Navy, and at one time he was a special assistant to the Navy Comptroller at the Pentagon, so he was pretty high up in the U.S. government. Eventually, he leaves the U.S. Navy, and he rejoins the business world, and he would become the CEO and chairman of the Houston Natural Gas Company. And so Enron was formed when a company called InterNorth, that was an energy company from Omaha, Nebraska, acquired the Houston Natural Gas Company. And Ken Lay was named the CEO of the new company, which was rebranded as Enron, with its new headquarters in Houston, Texas. And when Enron was formed as a company in the mid-80s, wasn't there a lot of deregulation going on in the energy industry? Yes, exactly. From the late 1970s and largely all the way through the 1990s, you have a period of actions that lead to deregulation on U.S. energy. And we are not going to go into a lot of detail today, but I highly encourage anyone listening to take some time to read about the history of regulations on U.S. energy. In most sectors in our economy, you have opinions from economists and the general public that encourage very little regulation and economic freedom, and then those on the other side that favor a more regulatory environment. And this often coincides with political views. But when it comes to U.S. energy, it's not as simple when taking a position of regulation versus deregulation, because there's so many geopolitical factors to consider. Looking back on the U.S. energy timeline, when the U.S. comes out of World War II and heads into the Cold War, there was a lot of tension and strained relationships around the world. And at this time, President Eisenhower was concerned about being too dependent on foreign oil. So he implements the Mandatory Oil Import Program. And this limited the amount of oil imported from foreign nations to 9% of our domestic production. So in the 1950s, there was a booming economy and a middle class that starts growing substantially. Now all of a sudden, most citizens are able to afford vehicles as a means for transportation. And that means that the demand for oil production goes through the roof. So this program protects the domestic oil producers, but with this surge in demand for oil and energy, it also drives the prices up as well. By the early 1970s, U.S. domestic production can't keep up with the demand, and the U.S. is faced with a looming gas shortage. So at that time, President Nixon ends the import quota program, which opens up more reliance on foreign oil. And shortly after this program is ended, the Yom Kippur War breaks out between Israel and Egypt and Syria. And when the United States provides military aid to Israel, members of OPEC, which is the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, they put an oil embargo on the nations that supported Israel. And at the time, this was very problematic because OPEC was 80% of the world's crude oil exports. So that means there's shortages in gas lines throughout the United States. And by the time this embargo ends the following year, 
oil prices were up over 350%. President Nixon continued to keep oil price controls in place on domestic production. There was further disruption in the global oil markets during the Iranian Revolution, which broke out in 1978. And the United States starts to pass laws that deregulate domestic energy production to try to promote more domestic supply and lower the cost of energy. In 1978, a couple key laws passed. Before these laws, energy companies were natural monopolies with vertically integrated structures. So they took on all the functions of generating, transmitting, and distributing electricity. When the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA, passed, these energy monopolies were deregulated, which allowed non-utility generators to produce power for customers. And you also had the Natural Gas Policy Act, which deregulated natural gas, and it allowed consumers and businesses to choose their supplier. And then you get into the 1980s, when laws are passed to fully deregulate crude oil and natural gas prices. So this allows U.S. producers to set the prices in line with the global marketplace. And again, this is a very high-level overview of the U.S. energy timeline, but I highly encourage everyone to read more about the events that led to volatility in the energy markets and how the U.S. responded to these events. I don't think any one law or event can be blamed for what happens with Enron, but it certainly gives you an appreciation for what the landscape looks like and how Enron tried to use some of the new laws to their advantage. It's interesting to reflect on how the global political and economic environment is connected to Enron's history. So the deregulation of energy prices then opened the door for Ken Lay to get Enron into the financial markets, and the company started to bet on energy prices. How did that work out for Enron in the beginning? Yeah, Ken Lay wanted Enron to make money outside of the normal operations you would associate with delivering natural gas. And in 1987, the first big event and red flag on Enron's history happens, and it's known as the Valhalla scandal. And no, this has nothing to do with the afterlife for Vikings. Valhalla is a place in New York where Enron had its Enron oil trading subsidiary. The Valhalla scandal involved two traders whose job was to make money for Enron by trading oil futures. And anyone who knows about the derivatives markets knows that trading futures can be very speculative and very risky. And make no mistake about it, the Enron oil trading business was not trading derivatives to hedge against risk or exposure. This operation was all about gambling on risky financial instruments to try to generate profits for Enron. The two traders were Louis Borgett, who was president of Enron oil trading, and Tom Masteroni, who was the treasurer. These two traders not only were gambling on futures way beyond their authorized limits, they were also falsifying trading records and moving corporate funds to complex offshore entities that they had created for themselves. Enron's auditors came back with a report to Ken Lay and the board of directors, and this report showed that these two traders were trading way beyond their limits, they were misappropriating company cash, and falsifying financial records. So after finding this out, what action do you think most CEOs would take in this situation? At the very least, this sounds like grounds for immediate dismissal. With misappropriation of cash, these guys were breaking the law by stealing company money, and it surely doesn't seem overkill to press charges for fraud. I agree. I think that would be the standard plan of action a CEO should take in this situation. However, Ken Lay does not turn this information over to law enforcement. In fact, he doesn't even fire or discipline Louis Borgett or Tom Mastroni. He doubles down on this operation by asking them to trade even more money. Ken Lay knows that Enron's core natural gas operations are not only boring, but they're not making the company any money. The company's profits are coming from these risky futures trades. 
Eventually, as the saying goes, the horseshoe fell out. The trader's luck on gambling in these futures contracts runs out. They end up drawing down about $90 million in company cash and racking up huge trading losses. Enron headquarters in Houston sees volatility in their cash, but they don't really know what's going on because these traders are still falsifying the trading and accounting records. Then a hardline, no-nonsense Enron executive goes up to Valhalla, New York, and he lays down the law on these traders. Eventually, he gets the real trading records, and he sees that nearly all of Enron's cash is depleted because of this reckless gambling on energy futures. At this point, the company is in serious trouble. The Enron executive was able to make some aggressive moves in the market to prevent margin calls on large loss positions on energy futures. He was able to recover some of the prior losses from these traders, but the company just barely survives two years into its early life. And now that the two Valhalla traders were losing money, Enron finally takes action, and these two traders end up getting fired and convicted of fraud. However, Enron has a big problem. Their core operations of producing and delivering natural gas and energy, it's still not performing well. The operations are losing money. So with Ken Lay's top two traders now in jail and completely out of the picture, he has to come up with a new way for the company to make money. At this point, we're still in the late 80s, and Jeff Skilling walks in the door Enron as a consultant with McKinsey. Yes, our second big player in the Enron story is Jeff Skilling. Like Ken Lay, Skilling did not come from a wealthy household, although he did not grow up in poverty like Lay. Skilling earned an MBA from Harvard, and he went on to become one of the youngest partners in McKinsey's history before joining Enron. As a consultant at McKinsey, Skilling helped Enron create a forward market in natural gas. A forward market is an over-the-counter financial market, which enables the trading of contracts for future deliveries. In this case, we're talking about natural gas. And trading contracts over-the-counter just means that two parties exchange contracts privately, not through an exchange such as the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. At this time in the late 1980s, creating a forward market outside of a financial exchange where parties can exchange natural gas contracts, it's a pretty sophisticated concept. When Jeff Skilling leads this project for Enron, his work really impresses Ken Lay. In 1990, Ken Lay hires Jeff Skilling to become the CEO of a division of Enron called Enron Finance. He would then transition to being CEO of Enron Capital and Trade Resources, which was the branch of the company responsible for energy trading. And I think in Skilling, Ken Lay saw someone who would find creative ways to generate profits for Enron in the financial markets because their business as an energy company is still not making any money. Yes, and I think it's important to consider the overall economic picture when Jeff Skilling comes on board in the early 90s. In the United States, you had the end of the Cold War and the dawn of huge economic progress in the internet and technology. The 90s were a great time period for the stock market, especially technology stocks. And Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay did not want Enron to be known as a utility company that produces and delivers energy. They wanted to portray Enron as being on the forefront of this economic environment that saw an explosion in technology and innovation. The U.S. stock market entered an incredible bull run, and technology stocks were leading the way. Now, During this period, there was an incredible amount of emphasis on revenue growth at publicly traded tech companies. As long as they continued to show large growth in their top line, the stock prices just kept going up. When Jeff Skilling comes to Enron, he does two things right away. First, he hires Andy Fastow to join Enron Finance. And Fastow is the third big player in our Enron story. He previously worked at Continental Illinois Bank 
on newly emerging financial instruments called asset-backed securities. And asset-backed securities are investments that are collateralized by underlying assets. So the cash flow generated from these securities would typically come from debt, such as home equity loans or auto loans. I think that FastDAO having this experience working on newer and somewhat complex financial instruments was an attractive thing to skilling. And FastDAO would later go on to become the CFO of Enron. The second thing skilling does when he gets to Enron is requests approval from the Securities and Exchange Commission to use mark-to-market accounting for energy contracts. And from an accounting perspective, there are three main areas that Enron exploited to overstate and falsify their financial reporting. Mark-to-market accounting is the first area we will talk about. Now, when the SEC approves Enron for mark-to-market accounting, Jeff Skilling and some other executives, they break out a bottle of champagne in a conference room. I think they saw this approval as a big opportunity to have control over how they reported their revenue and earnings. And at this time, was it common for companies to use mark-to-market accounting? The history of mark-to-market accounting under U.S. GAAP is really interesting. And when we are talking about mark-to-market accounting, we're really talking about bringing financial assets and financial liabilities to fair value as the market conditions change. And this is in contrast to historical accounting, where a financial asset or financial liability would sit on the balance sheet at its historical value versus the current market value. And if you look back at the history of mark-to-market accounting, in the context of financial reporting, it's not exactly a smooth ride. Mark-to-market accounting was used by banks and financial institutions to fair value their financial assets and liabilities, going all the way back to the early 1900s. Now, some economists, including Milton Friedman, they believe that mark-to-market accounting played a role in the economic collapse and the subsequent Great Depression, which started in 1929. The thought was that when banks had to write down their financial assets and loans to market prices, It could result in large artificial hits to capital without considering the actual performance of the assets and loans. So they argue that these large artificial hits to the capital on the balance sheets increased the likelihood of asset fire sales and made the markets less liquid. President Franklin Roosevelt was not a large fan of mark-to-market accounting. At the encouragement of the SEC, FDR got rid of mark-to-market accounting in 1938. But by the 1980s and into the 90s, many major banks and corporations started to use mark-to-market accounting again. And in 1993, FAS 115 came out, which required companies to fair value certain debt and equity securities when that fair value was readily determinable. Debt and equity securities that were classified as held to maturity, those were kept at amortized costs. Those did not need to go to fair value. Debt and equity securities classified as trading were mark-to-market at fair value with the impact going through earnings. And securities classified as available for sale were reported at fair value with those unrealized changes going through other comprehensive income. Then in 2007, FAS 157 came out, which required a fair value hierarchy to give the readers of financial statements more insight into the valuation techniques. Level one is for assets and liabilities with the most transparent valuation techniques. That is, their fair value is typically derived from quoted prices and active markets. Level 2 requires more valuation techniques and inputs outside of quoted prices. These are observable inputs such as public data, interest rates, and contract terms. And finally, Level 3 are unobservable inputs, where the valuation techniques and data inputs may not be verifiable. Level 2, and especially Level 3, is where subjectivity can really come into play when coming up with the fair value of the asset or liability. 
And finally, most recently, ASC 2016-1, which was effective for periods starting in 2018, got rid of the available for sale classification. That is, any changes in equity securities that were previously classified as available for sale through other comprehensive income now have that unrealized impact go directly through the income statement earnings. So as you can see, adjusting financial assets and liabilities to fair value with marked market accounting has moved in many different directions since the early 1900s. And getting back to Enron, when Jeff Skilling comes on board, this was at a time when mark-to-market accounting just started to be used again by banks and some large corporations, and it was before the FASB started to issue more guidance around the practice. So when the SEC approves Enron to use mark-to-market accounting, Enron sees a huge opportunity to take control of the financial reporting for their long-term natural gas contracts. Before mark-to-market accounting, Enron would have these long-term natural gas contracts that would require them to deliver a certain amount of natural gas in the future at specified prices. And in line with the revenue recognition rules, Enron would record revenue and expenses on these contracts after the work was performed and the gas was delivered. But when they received approval for mark-to-market accounting, they treated these long-term gas contracts as financial assets, and it allowed them to estimate and recognize income up front by present valuing the future net cash flows. Now thinking back to the three classification levels of inputs for calculating fair value, these contracts were certainly not standardized. They were custom contracts between Enron and a third party. There were no direct comparisons in other active markets. So this allowed Enron an incredible amount of subjectivity to calculate the value of these contracts. And they would recognize the income from these contracts using their own calculations before any of the gas had even been delivered. So on paper, for their revenue, growth, and their stock price, This was like winning the lottery for them. They now had this huge incentive to enter into as many natural gas contracts as they could, and they would come up with these unrealistic internal calculations for the value of these contracts, and then recognize the earnings up front before any obligations were fulfilled. And remember, since Enron started, they were never good at making money in their core operations of delivering gas and energy. But all of a sudden, when they could estimate and record their future earnings on natural gas contracts, they projected huge amounts of revenue and earnings. Enron likes mark-to-market accounting so much that eventually they start to use it in other areas as well, outside of natural gas contracts. They started to get into all sorts of other technology ventures, and they would enter into contracts and recognize profits, even though many of the contracts were never even fulfilled. So a notable contract was their deal with Blockbuster Video. In July 2000, they agreed to provide Blockbuster with the technology to offer its customers on-demand streaming entertainment, basically what Netflix does now. And this was a new concept and technology back then. So Enron enters into this deal with Blockbuster, and they recognize profits of $100 million on the contract up front. Then Enron struggles to deliver on their streaming technology, and eventually the deal just completely falls apart. So $100 million in paper profits in their earnings, but the contract is never even fulfilled. It's really interesting how many changes and strong opinions there have been around mark-to-market accounting over the past 100 years. In Enron's case, it's hard to blame mark-to-market accounting. They were clearly using inputs and assumptions in their fair value calculations that they either knew were not true or knew would never happen in the future. I think that's why there's so much emphasis now on objectivity and using outside specialists to calculate fair value on some of the level two and level three assets that are not traded in active markets. 
So Enron abused mark-to-market accounting to inflate revenue and earnings, but they continued to look for other accounting techniques to show even larger revenue growth in their financial reporting. Yes, and the second way they exploited and abused the accounting rules was for a new business venture called Enron Online, and this was launched in 1999. Enron Online was a trading platform that was the first web-based transaction system that allowed buyers and sellers to buy, sell, or trade commodities in real time, and this was on a global scale. Being the first of its kind, this new platform was used by just about every energy company in the United States. Enron effectively acted as a market maker for real-time trading of commodities, including electricity, natural gas, and coal. Now, from a revenue recognition perspective, the accounting rules recognize the merchant versus the agent models. Under the merchant model, a merchant has possession of the product and takes on the risk of selling it. For example, Walmart buys t-shirts from a supplier, and they take full possession of the t-shirts while taking on the risk of holding that inventory and selling it. As a merchant, they are entitled to report the full sale price of the t-shirts as revenue, not just the difference between what they purchased and sold them for. Now, under the agent model, an organization acts as more of a broker between two other parties. They act as a service provider who does not take possession of the asset or product. And at the time of Enron Online, every other major financial trading platform run by companies such as Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, they recognized revenue under the agent model. That is, they only recognized the revenue on the commissions or fees on a trade. They didn't recognize the full value of the asset that was traded. Enron made the argument that they should be able to recognize the full value of the trades under the merchant model because they claimed to be the counterparty instead of only the broker. But in reality, even as the counterparty in the middle of these trades, they were not taking possession or taking on the full risk of possessing these commodities. There was almost always a third-party buyer and third-party seller lined up on either side in these trades. Enron somehow got their auditors, Arthur Anderson, to agree with their position that they should be viewed as the merchant in these trades. So they moved forward with recognizing revenue on the full value of every Enron online trade in which they were the market maker. Shortly after launching, Enron Online was executing over a billion dollars in commodity trades every single day. So by recognizing the full value of the trading activity, this had a substantial impact on their reported revenue. The problem is that the only real profit on these trades is the very tiny difference between the buy and sell prices of these transactions. So you have Enron reporting tens of billions of dollars of new revenue from Enron Online, but very little new profit. However, it did not seem to matter to most investors and analysts on Wall Street. From 1996 through 2000, thanks to -to mark-to-market accounting and the merchant model, Enron reported revenue growth of 165% per year. Yes, that is 165% average annual growth for five years, not 165% total growth. But during the same time period, their reported income only grew by 17% per year. This should have set off huge red flags for the business community. But in reality, only a small number of analysts questioned Enron's financials as the stock continued to explode in growth. Now, later on, after Enron collapsed, the bankruptcy examiner, Neil Batson, put out a report showing just how much they had inflated revenue. The report indicated that mark-to-market accounting and the merchant revenue model inflated their revenues by up to 1,500%. And 95% of reported profits were due to Enron's misuse of mark-to-market accounting and the merchant model. 
In the year 2000, the year before everything collapsed, Enron reported revenue of $101 billion, when in reality the revenue should have been reported around $5 billion. To me, that is astonishing how a company that large and in the spotlight could get away with showing a revenue number that's about 95% fake. So Enron abuses mark-to-market accounting and the merchant model to highly inflate their revenue growth. But this is all paper activity. It's not generating any real profit or cash flow for them, and they are continuing to lose money on their physical energy business. Yes, Enron's natural gas business was a disaster. They were terrible at their core operations of producing energy. They started to rack up large natural gas and power plant losses all over the world. These power plants and pipelines cost billions of dollars to build, and most of them were losing money. Enron was willing to build power plants in risky environments and unstable markets, but it rarely ever worked out well for them. In one project, they built a huge power plant in a section of India, but the people in that region could not afford to pay for the energy that was being produced. They ended up losing $1 billion on the project, but somehow still paid millions to the project executives based on projected profits that never arrived. With Enron showing huge revenue growth on paper, but no real profits or cash flow, and their physical energy business losing billions, they needed a way to hide their losses and debt and keep funding their business. Yeah, and this is the third area of accounting that Enron exploited to report false financial statements. And while we previously talked about how they abused the mark-to-market and merchant model accounting rules, when they started using special purpose entities, There's no question about it. They delve straight into financial fraud. The original purpose of special purpose entities, or SPEs, was to be independent legal entities that perform a very narrow objective, such as purchasing assets from other companies. Their intended goal was to mitigate companies from financial risk. Andy Fastow, now the CFO of Enron, set up hundreds of special purpose entities. Under the rules at the time, as long as 3% of the capital in an SPE came from an independent source and was at risk, that is, not financially guaranteed by the other entity, then the special purpose entity qualified as quote-unquote independent. This meant that Enron would fund 97% of the capital by raising debt, but not report that debt on their own balance sheet. And in reality, even the 3% independent funding usually came from associates of Enron employees, so they were not independent under the rules. Enron's primary objective with these special purpose entities was to inflate their earnings and hide their debt and losses. With Enron's physical energy business performing so poorly, they now had a way to move troubled assets off their own balance sheet. They would raise debt in the special purpose entities, which was usually backed by Enron's stock. The special purpose entity would then buy these troubled or worthless assets from Enron, which moved them off of Enron's balance sheet and replaced them with a gain in cash flow even though that cash flow was from debt secured by their own stock in the special purpose entity. It was accounting magic. We talked before about how Enron grossly inflated their revenue through mark-to-market accounting and the merchant model. But these tactics were just on paper. They did not produce profits or cash flow. Now with the SBEs, they found a way to show profits and cash flow on disposing of their troubled assets. And if you look back at Enron's financials in the late 90s, Their cash flow almost always looked terrible in the first three quarters, and then magically it would come in strong in the fourth quarter to beat Wall Street estimates. They would rely on these fraudulent special purpose entity transactions to produce whatever profit and cash flow they needed to beat the expectations at the end of the fiscal year. One special purpose entity was called LJM Investment Partnership, 
which was the letters for Andy Fastow's wife and children. This was set up as an investment fund with Fastow as the general partner. Its only purpose was to do business with Enron, where Fastow was also the CFO, a clear conflict of interest. For this fund, Fastow convinced nearly 100 Wall Street banks to invest. These banks willfully put money into LJM, which was really only used to help fund Enron who was short on cash. But this funding never appeared as debt on Enron's books. It stayed in this LJM special purpose entity. And to be clear, the Wall Street banks could not claim ignorance in this scheme. Many of them knew exactly what was going on. In one deal, Merrill Lynch purchased three Nigerian power barges from Enron through the special purpose entity. The agreement called for Enron to pay them back 22% interest and buy back the barges a few months later. Of course, from the outside, this seems almost comical. Merrill Lynch is certainly not in the business of purchasing power barges, but they agreed to this fraudulent transaction to make it look like an asset purchase and not a loan to Enron. Andy Fastow racked up nearly $30 billion in debt in these special purpose entities and paid himself about $45 million from these SPE transactions. In most cases, Enron's stock was used as collateral for the debt in these deals. So if the stock price started to fall, it was all a house of cards that would come crashing down. At the same time, natural gas and energy operations are continuing to lose more money. Enron desperately needed to find other sources of generating cash to keep their business afloat. In the mid-90s, California experienced significant energy issues and they transitioned to a deregulated energy market. Enron saw this as an opportunity and in 1997, they acquired Portland General Electric, which put them in the electricity business in California and the West Coast. Yeah, Enron saw this as an opportunity. But the opportunity was not to provide better energy solutions to California. They viewed this as a way to control and manipulate the energy markets and prices on the West Coast. By manipulating the energy prices, the Enron energy traders could make a fortune for the company. And at this stage in the company's life cycle, when looking at their real financial situation, the company was losing money in just about every area of the business except their trading, which involved trading risky energy derivatives. This meant that the traders and the Enron trading floor was the most important operation in the company. And to step back, it's hard to overstate how corrupt this operation was. Enron had complete control over the supply of electricity on the West Coast through their own power plants. But at the same time, their own trading floor was making trades on this energy, knowing that they could control the supply, demand, and pricing. When California experienced energy shortages, the traders would export power out of the state which would make the energy prices go way up. Once the price was where they wanted it, they would bring the energy back in and sell it at a huge profit. So how did they manipulate the supply and prices? Well, the traders would simply call the power plant managers who worked for Enron and ask them to shut down the plants. They would have them come up with some excuse for shutting them down, such as routine maintenance. This would create artificial shortages and drive the prices through the roof and led to many rolling blackouts for the citizens on the West Coast. When it was all said and done, the year-long energy crisis cost the state of California about $30 billion, and the Enron traders made a profit of $2 billion from their manipulation of the market. And at this point, we enter the new century, and by mid-2001, things on Wall Street are changing. The tech bubble from the 90s has started to burst, and the Enron House of Cards starts to come crashing down. Yes, by mid-2001, more analysts started to question Enron's operations and financial results. 
but no one on the outside has any idea of how bad things really are. With tech and the overall stock market falling, this means big trouble for Enron, because they collateralized billions in debt with their stock in those special purpose entities. In August 2001, Jeff Skilling, out of the blue, resigns as CEO of Enron. Remember, this is only a handful of months after they announced record financial results for the year 2000. At the time of his resignation, the outside world does not yet know the extent of fraud going on at Enron, and Jeff Skilling is able to convince the public that he's resigning for personal reasons. Now, later on down the road, when he speaks to Congress, he has this famous quote. Congressman, I, I can just say it again. On the date I left, I absolutely unequivocally thought the company was in good shape. Most people think that Jeff Skilling knew this game could not go on forever, and he had to get out before the ship went down. On his way out, he sold large amounts of shares in the company, making tens of millions of dollars. Jeff Skilling's resignation sets off some red flags, and more reporters and analysts start to question the Enron financial results. With Ken Lay back now in the CEO role, Enron announces that they will need to restate earnings for the prior four years to correct accounting violations. Then the SEC opens an investigation into Andy Fastow's special purpose entity deals, and the Enron stock collapses. On December 2, 2001, Enron files for bankruptcy, and thousands of employees who had their retirement savings in Enron stock lose it all. Eventually, Ken Lay, Jeff Skilling, and Andy Fastow are indicted for conspiracy, fraud, and insider trading charges. Enron's auditor, Arthur Anderson, gets convicted of obstruction of justice for shredding massive amounts of work papers related to their work with Enron. Arthur Anderson was Enron's auditor, but also performing consulting services for them. By 2001, the year that Enron files for bankruptcy, Arthur Anderson was receiving $1 million per week from Enron. After the obstruction charge, Arthur Anderson, which was America's oldest accounting firm, they're forced to surrender their CPA license, effectively putting them out of business and 85,000 people lose their jobs. And this is as a result of the actions of one Arthur Anderson office. Andy Fastow would go on to plead guilty and cooperate with the investigation. Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling both go to trial and get convicted. And I think the Enron collapse sent shockwaves through the stock market and the U.S. economy. You had a company that was consistently talked about as one of the most innovative companies in America, and they were ranked number five on the Fortune 500 list. And it went down in flames in a matter of months. If this could happen to Enron, it probably seemed at the time that this could happen to any company. And now you have this whole distrust in the accounting and financial reporting for public companies. How could the investment community place any reliance on financial statements when there was this much fraud and deception hidden in the numbers? Yeah, the U.S. government knew they needed to act quickly to prevent this type of fraud from happening with other companies and also restore some level of trust with the public in the U.S. financial markets. To address the major concern over special purpose entities, the FASB developed FIN46 and the term variable interest entities. Under this new interpretation, variable interest increases and decreases in value according to the increases and decreases in expected cash flows from the other entity's assets and liabilities. Once a variable interest entity is established, if the other entity holds the majority of the risk and rewards of the VIE, it must be consolidated. 
So this guidance made it much more difficult to remove assets and liabilities from the company's balance sheet if that company retained economic exposure to the other entity's assets and liabilities. Congress acted quickly as well with the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. This law brought substantial changes for public companies and public accounting firms. Sarbanes-Oxley created the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board for regulating accounting firms who audited public companies. Sarbanes-Oxley emphasized auditor independence to prevent scenarios where the accounting firms were acting as the auditor and the consultant for a public company. The law also required companies to create controls around financial reporting and for auditors to express an opinion on these controls. And finally, CEOs and CFOs could not claim ignorance on their financial statements anymore. Sarbanes-Oxley requires them to certify and approve the integrity of their company's financial reports. So from an accounting perspective, I hope this episode gave you some good insight on how Enron abused and exploited the financial reporting guidelines, and also how the Enron collapse led to enormous changes in the accounting industry. As one of our sources used to develop this podcast episode, I want to mention the documentary called The Smartest Guys in the Room. If you've not already seen it, I highly recommend checking it out for more information on the Enron scandal. Thank you for listening to the Encorsa podcast. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. As a reminder, if you are looking for CPE credit for this episode, you can click on the link in the show notes, which will take you to Encorsa.com to complete the review questions required for CPE credit. If you do not have an Encorsa account, it takes less than one minute and it's free to sign up. Thank you so much for being part of the Encorsa community. Until next time, I wish you nothing but the best.